Well, we have a great opportunity this morning to welcome Dr. Laurieann Demmer as our Grand Round speaker. Dr. Demmer is Director of the Clinical Genetics Program at Levine Children's Hospital at Carolina's Medical Center. Um, Dr. Demmer is a Dartmouth alum, uh, an AB magna cum laude and a Phi Beta Kappa. Uh, got away to finish her medical degree at Washington University in St. Louis, where she also completed her pediatric internship residency and fellowship in medical genetics, but started a professional career closer by at University of Massachusetts Medical School, rising to associate professor and transitioning to Tufts University School of Medicine in Boston before heading more recently down south to the University of North Carolina, where she is uh, chief of genetics as she had been at Tufts. She has no fewer than 20 at least 20 awards for excellence in teaching on her curriculum vitae. More recently has been the president of the Association of Professors of Human and Medical Genetics, and the president of the American Board of Medical Genetics and Genomics, and not surprisingly, the chair of the ACGME Medical Genetics Residency Review Committee, given her teaching expertise and also important role as the Associate Pediatric Residency Program Director at Carolinas and at Levine Children's Hospital. So um, an excellent teacher and, an, uh, and a geneticist in an important field as the topic for the day is a survival guide for those of us in pediatrics as genetics has been closer to our specialty maybe than others, but the world I imagine is exploding that, that Dr. Demmer is going to share with us. So thank you. Come. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. Um, it is true, I started out here at Dartmouth, and this is definitely where my love of genetics began, in the lab of Dr. Bob Gross, um, counting fruit flies and playing with uh, fruit fly genetics and genes. And um, so Dr. Gross was a beloved biology teacher here for many years. He passed away about four years ago. So this is where it all began, and it's very heartwarming to be back. So. So we're going to talk about uh, growing up in the genomics era. We're all growing up together in the genomics era. Um, and uh, a lot of things are happening very quickly. My only disclosure is that I'm on the clinical advisory board for a genetic testing company. We're going to talk a lot about genetic testing today, but not about any specific companies. And our objectives are to recognize the impact of new genomic technologies on your patients and your practice to identify patients who may benefit from genetic services and testing, and to understand the benefits and limitations of current genetic and genomic testing techniques. So I thought we'd start with some history of genetics and genomics, just kind of buzz through this quickly. It really started in 1953 when Watson and Crick described the double helix model of DNA. And then it wasn't until 56 when we realized that humans carried 46 chromosomes. In the 1970s was really the birth of molecular biology when restriction enzymes were discovered, and that allowed for the manipulation and the study of DNA. In 1990, we announced the goal of mapping and sequencing the human genome with the Human Genome Project, and they recognized right from the start that there were going to be ethical, legal, and social implications from that. So they reserved about 5 to 10 percent of the budget from the Human Genome Project for these LC implications, and that has carried through to the present time. 1993, we were able to start using pre-implantation genetic diagnosis. That's a technique with in vitro fertilization where you create embryos, and when the embryo gets up to about an eight-cell stage, you can remove a single cell and do a genetic test on that 
single cell and decide if that's an embryo that you want to reimplant back into the mom's uterus. 1996, Dolly, you've all heard of this, a domestic sheep was the first mammal clone from an adult somatic cell, and that was using the process of nuclear transfer. 1999, unfortunately, our patient Jesse Gelsinger died. Um, he had a urea cycle defect, ornithine transcarbamylase deficiency, for those of you who like biochemical pathways. I'm not going to show any today, so don't worry. Um, and unfortunately, that was at the University of Pennsylvania. That was investigated, there were a lot of irregularities, ethical questions that came up about that whole case, and a moratorium was placed on gene therapy, and that really slowed that whole process down. In 2003, the Human Genome Project was completed um, ahead of schedule, and also in 2003, Dolly died, again, ahead of when we expected her to. In 2011, we started offering cell-free DNA prenatal testing. To, as a way to uh, diagnose Down syndrome non-invasively in a mother's blood sample. And that really revolutionized the prenatal side of, um, of prenatal diagnosis. So the number of uh, procedures that maternal fetal medicine docs do now has come way down because of our non-invasive testing, which has really revolutionized that, uh, that whole side of medicine. 2012, we started offering whole exome sequencing. We're going to talk about this more later. 2016, whole exome sequencing uh, prenatally was offered, and that's a little controversial, um, especially if not done in the correct hands. 2016, whole exome sequencing is being done now in some um, research labs as part of an NIH-funded um, project for newborn screening. And then in 2017, whole genome sequencing became available clinically, and we're going to talk about that as well. So things are moving very quickly. Hi, right, I thought we would start with a case. This is a 13-year-old girl who comes into the pediatric office as a new patient with a history of fainting while playing soccer earlier that day. She had no warning and just went down. She has abrasions on her forehead and knees, but otherwise feels well. So what are you going to do? Well, if you're me, you can take a family history. I don't know about you guys. <laughs> I may be the only pediatrician here who's going to take a family history. Um, family history reveals that the mother had a number of fainting episodes as a teenager, but none in the past 20 years. Her sister is age 11 and healthy, but she had a brother who died of SIDS at age 8 months. And the maternal grandmother died at age 36 years due to heart disease. Does that sound, are you getting suspicious? Yeah. Good thing you took that family history from that new patient. All right, so let's talk about the role of a primary care provider um, when you're suspicious about a genetic condition. First of all, you have to be suspicious. You have to take the family history. If you don't take the family history and you're not thinking about genetic conditions, you're going to miss it. And in this day and age, you're going to miss an opportunity to do good for your patient um, because you're not going to you know, have the opportunity to offer them testing and uh, possibly prevent a problem. So you want to be able to recognize the features of Mendelian conditions. Then you need to, of course, identify the individuals who could benefit from genetic services, and then you need to either initiate an evaluation yourself if you're comfortable or refer them if you're not. And I find that's a very, uh, very geographical, um, huge ge geographical differences. And when I worked in Boston, there were so many geneticists there, you could just get an appointment, you know, the next day pretty much anywhere. They were just dying to take your patients and evaluate them. And 
other places, especially in rural places, the primary care doctors are much more inclined to start the workup themselves. And it may be hard to get a genetics um, evaluation. Some places where I am now in North Carolina, um, it can take a year and a half to get a genetics evaluation. Okay. At our place, our wait is three or four months. That's probably pretty typical. But if it's an emergency, we, of course, we always get them in right away. I don't know what the wait is here. I don't see Mary. I don't know if Mary Beth is. About four months. Yeah. About four months. Okay. And then once you have patients that have genetic conditions, of course, you are now the medical home. So you're going to be monitoring those patients. You have to recognize what the psychosocial issues are uh, with, with respect to that genetic disorder. And you have to be able to provide genetic information to the patient. Um, and Google is great for that. Genetics Home Reference is, some, is a really good site to provide uh, patient information to families. For physicians, I like Gene Reviews. Just Google Gene Reviews. It will have a wonderful review on um, hundreds of different genetic conditions, Mendelian conditions. Okay. But we, we really have to account for the comfort level of each individual uh, primary care physician. So if it's beyond your comfort level, obviously you want to refer. Are you knowledgeable about the genetic tests that you want to send? What about the labs? Are you familiar with the labs that offer the tests? Do you, have, do you know where to look to find the labs? There are two sites that you can go to. One is called um, Genetic Testing Registry, put out by the NIH, and the other one is genetest.org. And you can Google either of those and find a list of labs. But it's, it's pretty daunting when you go to do that the first time. Um, so you may need help with that. Dealing with the myriad of insurance uh, companies and the preauthorization requirements. In our hospital, we have two people that just do the preauthorization for the genetic testing. That's all that they do. Um, and so it's, it's a lot of work. And then when, if you do send the test, you have to be able to interpret the results and then explain it to the patients. And we're going to talk more about that later. So let's come back to our case. So you get an EKG, and it reveals a QT interval that's at the upper limits of normal and just overlapping with the long QT length. And when the reason for doing EKG is explained to the family, the mother offers even more family history. So MH has a male cousin who's now eight years old, but he was born at 33 weeks, and he suffered a number of events requiring resuscitation while he was in the NICU. And his EKG was also inconclusive. And although the pediatric cardiologist felt the EKG was not likely an issue, the neonatologist really wanted to test for long QT syndrome, and it returned negative. And you were able to find his note, you know, in the EMR, and it said no LQT, LQTS mutations detected. I think um, there were three genes being tested at that time. So does that make you feel better? No, not really. shouldn't. <laughs> eight years ago, what's happened to genetic testing in eight years, right? So you're thinking about testing this patient, or do you want to refer? <laughs> refer. <laughs> well, again, what's your knowledge base? What's your comfort level? Um, how complex is the testing? Do you feel comfortable looking it up? How about the sample handling? Is your lab able to, you know, because most of these are send-outs, is your lab able to handle that? Um, do you have time to go through the consent forms? Do you understand them? And uh, is the family going to need genetic counseling regarding the inheritance, the recurrence risk, the reproductive options, any specialized treatment, clinical trials, all those things? If you're not comfortable with all that, you're probably going to end up referring, right? Okay, back to our case. So has anything changed since the original test was performed eight years ago? So you look up the gene reviews 
for long QT and you find out, yes, in fact, now there are 15 genes that can cause long QT syndrome. So that's a, lot, a far cry from just three genes. So we definitely want to get updated testing. So as you test for more genes, it becomes more cumbersome and less cost-effective to test for each gene individually, which is what we used to do, because testing used to be so expensive, it cost a couple thousand to test each gene. But now it costs just as much to test all 15 genes as to test one gene. And why is that? It's because we have this new technique called next-generation sequencing. So with next-generation sequencing, it's very high-throughput sequencing technology where we can sequence millions or even billions of fragments of DNA all at the same time. And we call that massively parallel sequencing. So you have your DNA, you know, each, each of us has two chromosomes, um, one from mom, one from dad. We break them up into many different small little fragments and they get sequenced on a sequencer. And then they get mapped to our reference genome down here, which is in green and you have to sequence them many times over in order to totally fill in all the sequence spots. But that's okay because sequencing now is very cheap and very easy so that it makes sense and it, believe it or not, it all works out and it, it works out really well. So that's, that's what we do. We should call it now generation sequencing because it's not <laughs> next gen anymore. We're, we've been using it for a good five years. But we are drowning in data um, and there's a, a whole new um, career path now if your kids are interested in a good career path, bioinformatics, how to deal with all of this data. So what are the types of next-gen sequencing that we're using? First of all, the targeted gene panels. We're going to do a targeted gene panel for our patient to rule out long QT syndrome. But we do this for lots of patients that come in with some, if they have a focused problem like cardiomyopathy or autism hearing loss. You know, we have a panel we send to the University of Iowa, has about 150 genes on it for hearing loss. It's our go-to panel. Someone comes in, looks like Marfan syndrome. We have an agartopathy panel we send off. There, there are hundreds of panels now. You name, you know, you name something and I'll give you a panel for it, as long as it's focused. On the other hand, if someone comes in and has multiple issues going on, or you can't figure out what's going on with them, that's when we jump to the whole exome sequencing, and we're going to talk more about that in a minute. Whole genome sequencing would be the step beyond that, and we'll, we're going to come back to that as well. And then we also use NextGen for the cell-free DNA that we talked about on the OB side. So if you want to order genetic testing yourself, you really have to develop a strategy for doing so because we're getting this influx of genetic information. The genetic testing is changing on a daily basis. Even I go and check. Every time I want to send a genetic test, I go to check to make sure that testing hasn't changed from the month before or the week before. Um, we're also, our patients are also bringing us direct-to-consumer tests now. That's when you don't order it, the doctor doesn't order it. The, the consumer orders it directly from a company. Um, they're bringing us in results now and asking doctors to interpret them, so we have to be careful about that. Um, and if you are going to be ordering tests, you have to also be aware of the ethical, legal, and social implications of testing. For instance, is it okay to test children for adult-onset diseases? Every year I'll get a call or two from a pediatrician saying, you know, so-and-so's dad has just been diagnosed with Huntington disease. Huntington disease, is it okay if I test him for Huntington disease? He's six years old. Emphatically, no, you can't test a six-year-old for an adult onset, you know, disorder for which there's no treatment. But that's something that a pediatrician never deals with, so probably never thinks about. So contacting your friendly geneticist, you know, would, or a genetic counselor would be a good idea to ask these kinds of questions. 
All right, back to our case. So the pediatrician did consult with a medical geneticist who recommended retesting because of the number of new mutations and new genes reported in the past eight years. And they found a mutation in the SNTA1 gene, or Senta gene, and it turns out this gene only causes about 1% or less of long QT syndrome. So it is one of the newer genes that have been described. And there, there are the 15 genes known to cause long QT, um, and this is the gene that we found the mutation in. Okay. So this is an autosomal dominant condition. Typically presents with syncope. Um, it can also manifest a sudden cardiac death. Often when the patient has undergone exercise or stress, but sometimes also during sleep. Um, this family was referred to both a pediatric cardiologist and a medical geneticist for evaluation, counseling, testing. So they tested the whole family, um, and they identified the same mutation in the mother, the cousin, and the uncle. So good news is they're all on beta blockers, and one of the family members had a cardioverter defibrillator implanted. So we feel like we did good for this family. That's beneficence. That's a good thing. Okay. So because we have this technology, we should be able to make a case for early diagnosis for all these genetic conditions. Because if there is something you can do about it, you can prevent a problem, you know, that, that makes a lot of sense. We're still um, describing a lot of new genes. Twelve new Mendelian genes are being published every month. Um, there are greater than 5,000 Mendelian disorders that have been described so far, all at the tip of my tongue. Nah. <laughs> I have to look them up just like you do. Um, and probably another 2,000 yet to be described. Um, as you guys know, about 3 to 5% of infants will be born with a birth defect or a genetic condition. And by early adulthood, about 8% of the population uh, has a genetic disorder. So it's, it's pretty prevalent. A lot of the population of inpatient children's hospitals are children with birth defects or genetic conditions. And, and about 50% of those will have some kind of intervention, either surveillance or preventive measures or medical or surgical treatment. So that's, you know, we can really make a case for early diagnosis. And in those that we don't have any intervention for, what I've seen, the families are extremely grateful when we're just able to make a diagnosis. Because in the past, they've just gone from specialist to specialist, test to test, um, MRI to MRI, without a diagnosis. And we've really been able to flip um, the whole curve now in terms of most of the patients before not being able to have a diagnosis. And now I'd say the majority were not, you know, not everybody, but the majority now were able to find a diagnosis for because of this um, amazing testing that we're doing. So, um, and the families are so, so, so grateful when you're able to finally get them a, an answer. And now in the future, it's going to be not finally get them an answer. It's going to be get them an answer quickly. <coughs> Which brings us to our second case. This was a genetics consult that I did on a four-month-old male who was in the PICU, he had hypotonia, microcephaly, failure to thrive. He had feeding problems that first required a G-tube. Then he wasn't able to tolerate enteral feeds anymore and was TPN-dependent. Then he developed uh, increasing liver dysfunction. And then after um, administration of anesthesia, he developed respiratory distress, edema, and decreased mental status. So he previously had a genetic and metabolic workup um, basic, which was all negative, and they asked us to take another look at him because he was kind of going downhill. And I started to, you know, I looked at him, I started to write out all the differential diagnoses, and I started to write out all the different tests I wanted to send on him, and the list got quite long, like so many different possibilities. I just ripped up the paper, and I said, you know what, 
we're going to send whole exome on this kid. We're just going to look for everything at the same time. This was about two years ago um, when we were just getting ramping up with whole exome. And there was an opportunity to send what we call an expedited whole exome. So at the time, whole exome cost about $14,000. Um, and it took about anywhere between six, you know, six months to come back, four to six months if you're lucky. Um, but there's an opportunity to get an expedited whole exome. And we actually got the results back in six days. So they charged more, but we thought in this case it was worth it. So, and we got an answer. He had inherited uh, one mutation from his mom and one from his dad in the POLG gene, which is known to cause infantile lethal mitochondrial disorder. And he had continued to deteriorate over those six days. And we had been talking to the parents um, about that and about that we felt that was likely going to be a mitochondrial disorder and lethal. And so by the time I walked in with the results on the sixth, days, sixth day, the parents were comfortable transitioning to comfort measures. And we did that, and he died three hours later. And again, the parents were just so grateful about the, whole, the way the whole process worked out that we were able to get them an answer, and they felt comfortable with the answer and comfortable you know, moving to comfort measures, and they knew the recurrence risk uh, was going to be 25%, and we were able to talk about that for future pregnancies, and they, the whole process just went really smoothly. Um, and, you know, I felt, I felt good about that. Okay. So this is whole exome sequencing. So when I say exome, what I mean is we're just sequencing the coding parts of the genes. So that, that ends up being about 1% of the genome. So you're leaving behind all the introns, the middles of the genes, and, thing, and all the DNA between the genes. So you're just sequencing the coding parts here, the exons. And that's about 1% of the genome. So if you think we have about 3 billion base pairs of DNA total, you're still sequencing 30 million base pairs of DNA. So it's a big chunk of DNA that you're sequencing, about 180,000 exons total. But remember now, DNA sequencing is very cheap and fast and easy. So we can do this, and we can get it back in six days. You can even get it back. Now, now we can even get it back sooner than that. That was about two years ago with this case. So, so that's what we're doing. Okay, so why is genomic medicine so complex? Where do I begin? <laughs> well, let's look at the DNA sequence. I just mentioned we have about three billion pieces of DNA, each of us, and about one in every thousand pieces, we will have a variant. Each one of us will have a variant. Probably a benign variant, most of the time a benign variant, what we call a SNP, a single nucleotide polymorphism. But every once in a while, it won't be benign. It'll be malignant or pathogenic. It'll be a mutation. And what uh, is difficult is to determine which ones are benign and which ones are pathogenic when you're doing these sequencing tests. So if you look, for example, at... Uh, patient, person one and person two, you see there's been a difference in the sequence. In the top, you see a GCA. In person two, you see a GCG. Well, there's a variant, okay? We have an A to a G variant. But if you look at the amino acid that that's coding for, it doesn't change. They're both, they're both coding for alanine. So we can predict that that's probably benign. That's probably not going to change the shape or the function of that protein. So we're okay. We're okay with that being benign. Then you look at from person two to person three, in the next codon over, you have an AGA, which changes to an AAA. Now we're going from an arginine to a lysine. Now we have a different amino acid. Is that going to change the shape and the function of the protein? Maybe. Maybe not. 
It turns out arginine is a basic amino acid and lysine is a basic amino acid. So if I saw that, I would not be sure that actually it was, was going to change the shape and the function of the protein. If it changed to an acidic amino acid, like aspartate, like the one next to it, then I'd be, mm, I'd be worried. But if it's just changing from a basic to a basic, you really don't know. So a lot of times we're left with, hmm, we really don't know. So what do we do? <laughs> it's not easy. Well, we go to databases. Other people that have already sequenced this gene um, have put their information into these large databases, population-based databases with so-called normal people, variant databases, disease-specific databases with the abnormals, although there are mistakes in both of those. Um, we look at software prediction programs. A software prediction program will predict for you whether that protein is going to be changed or not and functional or not. They're notoriously wrong, but we use them anyway. <laughs> They're genome browsers. We look to see if that particular amino acid spot has been conserved over evolution from you know, all the different uh, animal species. We look at PubMed to see if there have been case reports or any in vivo functional studies on the protein or in vitro functional studies. We use Google. I mean, we use whatever we have. But at the end of the day, sometimes we get we're left with a variant of uncertain significance called the VUS, and that's kind of the bane of our existence. Over time, these are going to go away. As more people get more sequencing done and we figure this all out, the number of VUSs are going to go down. Um, but right now, it's, it's still a big issue. <coughs> okay, so test interpretation is very complex. If you get a negative test, if it comes back as negative, it doesn't necessarily rule out the condition for your patient. Why? Because Genetic tests aren't 100% sensitive. There could be, let's say I send off a hearing loss panel, and I've looked at those 150 genes for hearing loss. Well, there could be 10 other genes for hearing loss that we haven't even discovered yet, and maybe the patient has hearing loss based on one of those 10 genes that's not in the panel. So, yeah, it's a negative test, but the patient still has hearing loss, and it could still be a genetic form of hearing loss. A positive test doesn't always mean, doesn't always predict disease. Take the BRCA, the breast cancer gene, for instance. Not everybody who carries the BRCA gene is going to get breast or ovarian cancer, right? So it's, sometimes there's non-penetrance for the gene. Variants of uncertain significance we just talked about. They could turn out to be positive or they could turn out to be negative. They just come back as to us a maybe. Um, so you need the experience of the clinical geneticist, the geneticist who can evaluate the patient, see the patient in front of me. I know what the patient Sometimes I know what the patient has clinically, or I, at least I have a good idea, and then I can use that with the information the lab gives me. A lot of times I'll test family members. I'll test the parents to see if they have the variant of uncertain significance. If they do and they don't have the condition, at least for a dominant condition, that tells me, hmm, that's probably benign variant. If the parent doesn't have the condition and they have the variant, that's good, that's good information. So we can use all that information to make, to, you know, come up with um, our best judgment. And I spend several hours a day going over variants and trying to figure out what the best answer is for any, you know, any given patient that I've sent testing on. So it's probably not something that you guys want to do. Now the problem is there's a shortage of clinical geneticists, as you probably know, um, and shortage of genetic counselors as well. So um, just about every place in the country is trying to hire more clinical geneticists because the field is growing so fast and we're not really producing any more geneticists. So if anyone's interested in going genetics, come talk to me. Um, we really need you. 
So it may fall, actually, to the primary care physicians to really learn this stuff. And I think we're going to really need to step up our education regarding genomics because these things are going to eventually trickle down to you, especially if we start doing genomic newborn screening and those kinds of things. A pediatrician is going to need to know how to interpret those. Okay, so let's move from whole exome sequencing, just, just sequencing the exome, to sequencing the whole genome. Why sequence 1% when you can sequence 100% of the genome and get even more information, right? Why stop at 1%? The cost of sequencing has come down really rapidly, so whole genome sequencing is now clinically available. Um, you can get that done in six weeks, or if you need it in a hurry, you can get it done in 12 days. There's actually a company that works with the San Diego Children's Hospital, Rady Children's Hospital, and they're um, advertising that they can get whole genome done for their NICU babies in 26 hours. So it's pretty amazing. Um, and it's predicted that the whole genome sequence will ultimately replace whole exome because it's a better test, and it, eventually the price is going to come down enough where they're going to be equivocal, and so you're going to go with the better test. It's going to, it has more reliable sequence coverage. It's just a better test than the exome test. You don't have to amplify the DNA with PCR, so you get less mistakes. You don't, you have better um, detection of your single nucleotide variants. You have better detection of your insertions and your deletions. It also detects your copy number variants. What other test detects copy number variants that we send all the time? Our microarray, right? What do you call microarrays here? Microarray? Okay. There's many different names for microarray. You won't need to send microarrays anymore if you send this as your first-tier test. And it can detect structural variants like balanced translocations, unbalanced translocations, insertions. We won't have to send chromosomes anymore. It can, it can look for the uh, mutations outside of the exons and the introns, the promoters, enhancers. We're going to be, you know, have a higher sensitivity. And the sequence read length, they're going to have longer read lengths, so that will get us through our difficult areas to read, like the trinucleotide repeats. What's the trinucleotide repeat disorder that we send off a lot in pediatrics? Fragile X, right? So this could be actually one-stop shopping. We could send a whole genome sequence as a first-tier and only test, and uh, instead of doing this, you know, first we get the microarray and the fragile X and then the gene panel and then the exome, we could just do a whole genome. Whether or not this is going to happen in the next few years, I would not be surprised if it does. This is a study that was done in Toronto, um, was published last year. They got 103 patients. They looked at them prospectively. They got them from pediatric subspecialty clinics, not from genetics clinics. And they compared the diagnostic rate from the whole genome that they did, um, which was 41%, compared to a 24% diagnostic rate using conventional testing, the targeted, mostly targeted panels and arrays. Um, then uh, of the 103 patients that they looked at, they did whole exome on the first 70 that came through the door because they wanted to be able to compare the whole exome to the whole genome. And they found that the genome had a 25% higher diagnostic rate than the exome. So what they predicted was, was true, that it, uh, it is a better test. Okay, what about the cost of these tests? Well, we can get really good uh, comprehensive, that is the targeted test, like our long QT test. We can get that for $250 now. That's pretty good. It's really good. The West test, the whole exome, we can get now for $1,200. Um, it's more if you actually do the parents in addition. You get a better test if you do the child and the parents. 
And the whole genome we can get for $2,500. Again, it's more if you do the parents in addition, but these are really reasonable prices. When, as I mentioned, when we first doing whole exome, it was 14,000. Now it's down to 1,200. All right, what about genomic sequencing in newborns? I mentioned this. Um, it's not being done yet, but it is being done on a research basis. Um, so the, if we can diagnose all these conditions at the time of birth as part of newborn screening, should we be doing it? Well, it really does raise a lot of ethical questions and practical questions, like who's going to pay for it? Where are we going to store all the data? Who's going to keep all the data? Um, who's, you know, who's going to be in charge of it? Who's going to interpret all these variants? Who's going to reinterpret the variants once, um, you know, the technology improves over time? And um, there's going to be a, you know, it's going to be a loaded question. So the NIH has funded four groups across the country. One's in North Carolina, one's in Boston, I think one's in UCSF, and I don't remember the fourth one. But they're, um, they are doing newborn sequencing now. Um, they're doing mostly whole exome. And talking to my colleagues in North Carolina, it's amazing how amenable the parents are to having their newborns sequenced. They think it's great. Question? Yeah. Um, when you do the whole genome sequencing, you're going to pick up other diseases that you get. No intention of studying. Right. They used to say we all carry maybe eight to ten mutations, probably more, many more now that we have this. So how do you handle? Right. So that is what that is a good question. Um, the question is, when you do the sequencing, you're going to pick up things that you're not even looking for. We call those secondary findings, and that is part of the research. So the families are asked, okay, when we get these results, what do you want to know? Do you just want to know? conditions that are going to present in childhood? Do you want to know conditions that may present in adulthood? Do you want to know, you know, BRCA gene, those kinds of things? Do you want to know if you have Marfan syndrome? Do you want to know if you have long QT? There's a whole list. That American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics has a list of like 56 genes that they consider important for people to know about. They call them the secondary findings genes. So every time we do whole exome, or whole genome, we have to, it takes a long time to consent these families and we have to discuss with them do you want to know the results from these genes? Um, and because it may have implications, like if we do an exome on a baby and we find that there's a BRCA gene there, it may have implications for that baby's parents. So, so we ask them ahead of time, do you want to know this information? And they have to either opt in or opt out of that part of the test. We call those the secondary findings. It raises another interesting issue when that child is 18. If the family has opted not to know. Right. Can they go back and get that data later? And at this point, I don't think they can. I think you'd have to do another test. Yeah. Okay. We're going to move on to the next case. Um, okay, so I was called by one of my pediatric infectious disease friends and asked if I would speak to a friend of hers who had a, quote, problem. Never take these calls. <laughs> so it's an 85-year-old retired businessman, grandfather of like 14. Uh, he was in tears. He said his sister had signed him up for something that she saw on TV. And she didn't even make her own account because she was too cheap to spend the money. She used her friend's account. She got spit from him and his three brothers. And I think it was, an it was Ancestry. Um, you guys know Ancestry? Yeah. She signed him up for Ancestry. 
And a couple months later, he, it, he got some results back saying he had a son he didn't know about. 62-year-old son that had been, quote, looking for his father. <laughs> he was devastated. He's, he's 85 years old. He has four kids, 14 grandkids. Um, and he's like, how could this happen? I'm like, don't ask me how it could happen. <laughs> Turns out he had been in college. You know, he had slept with this woman. He said he had no recollection of doing this. I'm like, I, I can't comment on that. <laughs> and um, she got pregnant, and then she, you know, went to Virginia, had the baby, gave the baby up for adoption. And when he w turned 18, he found his birth mother. She died shortly thereafter of something, I don't know what. Um, and then he wanted to find his birth father. So he went on Ancestry in just the, the hope that maybe his father would go on Ancestry and their DNA would connect. And, and it did. The problem is, well, what's the problem? Is there informed consent here? No. The father had no idea what he was doing. I mean, he's 85 years old, and his sister told him, older sister told him to spit in a tube, and he did, because you know, <laughs> Angela's the oldest of all the kids. If her brother, you know, she told her brother to spit in a tube. He might do it. He might do it. <laughs> he would do it. Um, so, yeah, so no informed consent here. So big problem. So, um, so this actually set off a really severe episode of depression in him. Um, his kids were very upset, but they actually met this guy. He came, he met the family. Um, the oldest son was the mo felt the most threatened because now he was no longer the oldest son. Um, they wanted me to look at the data, the ancestry DNA data, and confirm it for them that it was real. And I did that, and I was like, yeah, it's real. You are his father. I said, you know, I don't think it would stand up in court. You'd have to, I showed him, you know, explained to them how they could go about getting a paternity test the real way if they wanted to, but, you know, they didn't want to do any of that. Um, I don't think he was after their money. I think he just, you know, wanted to meet his dad. So I didn't, you know, I didn't know how to feel about it. I didn't know how to, if I should feel happy for the son that he found his dad, or if I should feel sorry for the dad that, it, you know, sent him in this severe depression, or feel angry that we're able to direct the consumer Testing companies are able to cause this kind of havoc um, and not have informed consent. Um, you know, clinical geneticists are really wary of direct-to-consumer companies um, because of things like this. So, anyway, don't answer your, when your pediatric infectious disease friend calls. Just say no. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about direct-to-consumer testing for a few minutes. You've heard about, you've seen it on TV, heard it on the radio, Ancestry, 23andMe, Helix will uh, sequence your whole genome for you. Other companies will do cancer testing for you. Um, the FDA, a lot of these companies went out of business on their own, but the FDA actually closed down 23andMe for a few years until 2015. They said the tests weren't FDA approved and that um, they've been able to add back selected tests as each one gained FDA approval. So the tests they've, they've been added back, it's kind of been haphazard, um, but they, they have added several, several back now, not nearly what they were doing before. And the FDA says that these tests should only be used for genetic risk determination, that they should not be used for diagnosis and not to determine treatment. Okay. Now, the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics revised their position statement on direct-to-consumer testing. They said the testing should only be performed by CLIA-approved labs, um, and 23andMe is a CLIA-approved lab. The consumers should have easy access to geneticists and genetic counselors through the lab, which I, I don't think happens. Um, fully informed consent, we already see that can be a problem. 
Validity and utility should be clearly stated by the company with evidence for the consumer and that privacy concerns need to be addressed. Okay, so let's talk about Ancestry. Ancestry um, really just looks at your ancestry. It doesn't give out any health information and it claims to be the largest DNA network in the world. So they don't provide health data. They have divided uh, into 350 ethnic regions that they are representing. And they use, it's kind of like a SNP microarray. They survey 700,000 SNPs in your genome. Um, and in addition to giving you information about your ancestors, they will connect you to any living relatives based on shared amounts of DNA. So it's pretty harmless. Unless, you know, obviously there's a reason like we just talked about with informed consent. I think it's pretty harmless. 23andMe um, <clears throat> will also give out Ancestry. 23andMe, you have a choice. You can do Ancestry for, I think, $99, or you can do Ancestry and get some information on health for $199. So for the genetic health risks, they're not supposed to tell you, for instance, if you're going to get celiac or if you're going to get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. What they tell you is that if your risk is higher or lower than the general population. So how do they do that? For celiac, they look at your HLA DQ genes, and they tell you if your risk is higher or lower than the population. For Alzheimer's, they look at your APO, APOE gene, and they look at, tell you if you're higher or lower than the general population. So that's what they do. But people, you know, how people interpret that may be very different from what they're actually saying. So that can be an issue. Wellness, they tell you very important things like how you um, metabolize caffeine, whether your genetic weight should be um, predicted to be higher or lower than the general population, doesn't actually tell you what your weight is, how much you move during sleep, you know, important things. <laughs> Traits, whether you can smell the asparagus in your urine, whether you have hair on your back, whether you have dimples in your cheek, whether your hair is curly or straight, things that you may not know. <laughs> and they also do some carrier testing. Um, and these were things that the FDA really wanted to make sure they had, um, you know, were doing correctly. So some of the genes that they do carrier testing for, you know, are common things like cystic, cystic fibrosis. I actually participated in a research, um, a research uh, program with 23andMe years ago, and I found out that I was a carrier for CF and for hemochromatosis uh, through 23andMe. So you can get useful information through that. They only do 28 mutations. It's not a very big panel. Um, so again, if you, get, if you come out negative, it doesn't mean you're not a CF carrier. So that can be confusing. They look for the Canavan mutations. That's an Ashkenazi Jewish disorder. Bloom, Ashkenazi Jewish disorder. They look for the 10 most common thalassemia mutations. But again, there are hundreds of thalassemia mutations. And then this one here, I had to look up autosomal recessive spastic ataxia. Um, actually probably only seen in the French-Canadian population, so it's something that you guys may see here because you're close to that, but I've never heard of it before. So some really, you know, odd things as well. Um, so they can be misleading because they're not sequencing the genes, they're just testing for certain mutations, and I think that can be misleading to patients, to consumers. And they think they've undergone comprehensive testing when they haven't, Sometimes they'll make dangerous or irreversible healthcare decisions, especially around reproduction. Um, and many physicians don't understand what the testing is or the limitations of the studies. Um, and their studies have shown that the patients are disappointed when they bring the results into their PCP and ask them to interpret them, and the 
PCP, you know, doesn't really know how to interpret them any better than the consumer does. Um, the worst case I saw was actually down in North Carolina where someone had gotten BRCA, breast cancer gene testing done, just the Ashkenazi Jewish mutations. And she was actually negative for the Ashkenazi Jewish mutations, but she brought it into her OB and the OB misread it as positive and removed her ovaries. <gasps> and never contacted a genetic counselor or a geneticist. So those things happen. There's a question. The news this morning, 23 yes. yeah. announced they're going to do the three bracket genes. Or the oh, okay. They were doing them, and yeah, they were doing them, and then they had to stop, and now I guess they're adding them back. Yeah, okay. So just the three Ashkenazi. So that can be misleading as well, because if you come back and you say, oh, I'm negative for bracket gene, but you're really only negative for the three Ashkenazi Jewish mutations, right? Um, also, you can get confusing results sometimes. About a month ago, I had a patient come in, and they brought me their 23andMe results. It was a 12-year-old girl and her parents, and it said, no paternal contribution to the daughter's chromosome 4. And the parents were like, what does this mean? And she had a bunch of birth defects. Turns out her birth defects had nothing to do with this. I did some further testing on her, and she had maternal uniparental disomy for chromosome 4. Um, there aren't any imprinted regions on chromosome 4 that we know of, and her birth defects were due to something else. But, you know, you can see how that would be pretty confusing and scary for a family to get. And they tried to call 23andMe many times and could get no information. So. Okay. So let's see. We have time to do case 4. Um, maybe, just, maybe I'll just introduce it, and then we'll kind of skip through this quickly because uh, I want to leave some time for questions. So the, I was meeting with parents a couple weeks ago of a severely delayed two-year-old female uh, to explain the results of whole exome, which had found a de novo mutation in the pure A gene. Um, three nucleotides were deleted, which predicted the loss of a phenylalanine amino acid. And the prediction is very uh, unfortunate, very sad for this condition, severe intellectual disability. She may never walk um, or talk, and she's likely to have difficult-to-control seizures, so not a good condition. And the dad asked if there's any way to put the phenylalanine molecule back into the gene. And, of course, the short answer is no. But the long answer is enter CRISPR. Have you guys been reading about CRISPR in the news? Yeah, so CRISPR is a way to edit your genes. And um, I'm just going to go through a couple of these slides because we don't have a lot of time. But you can actually take out the gene or the pieces of DNA that you don't want and replace them. Um, and compared to other gene editing methods that have been tried in the past, this one is simple, it's versatile, it's precise, it's fast, and it's relatively inexpensive, which also makes it dangerous. Um, but it's probably going to be used to treat genetic disorders. In fact, it already is. Um, what does CRISPR stand for? Clustered, regularly interspaced, short palindromic repeats. That's all a very fancy way of saying this was derived from a bacterial immune system, which was designed to cut a viral DNA to prevent reinfection in the future. So, um, and this, I love this quote by Hugo Bellin, who's a uh, Howard Hughes fellow in, uh, at Baylor. He says, everything is possible with CRISPR. I'm not kidding. So with CRISPR, there's basically two pieces to CRISPR. You have a protein, this Cas9 protein, and then you have an RNA, and it's a guide RNA. So your, pro your guide RNA will, um, half of it will hold on to the protein, to guide it, and the other half is a RNA that you've designed to match the piece of DNA that you want to change. So it hooks up right there. And then the protein knows where to cut. It cuts at that little right, red arrow there, which you have pre-designed to cut, 
and it cuts a double-strand break there. So then, you're, then you take advantage of your cell's natural repair mechanisms, and there are two of them. You can either do something called non-homologous end joining. Mm, that's not so good. We don't really want that, because that will end up putting in extra base pairs, taking out base pairs, and basically knocking out your gene. So not so good. But that's the one that the cell prefers, especially cells that aren't dividing all the time. On the other hand, we have this one that we do prefer called homologous directed repair. And if you, you put in the piece of DNA at the same time with the Cas9 that you want to um, end up being your ultimate DNA, it will replace that one instead. So that's what we want to shoot for. That's much easier done if your cells are dividing, like blood cells, for instance. So you can imagine this is going to be a lot easier to do in the blood than in the brain. So I'm just going to... Um, some of the proposed uses for this has been to genetically modify animals like mosquitoes, no longer able to transmit malaria, that would be great, or wiping out species of mosquitoes in one generation. I'm all in favor of that. Um, genetically modifying plants and farm animals to confer disease resistance or possibly putting in vitamins uh, to prevent vitamin deficiency. One big thing uh, is tissue-based individualized treatment for cancer, so precision medicine It's going to be big on this. In terms of gene therapies, it's going to be easiest for the blood disorders where you can actually take the bone marrow out, edit them in the, you know, in the lab, look for any off-target effects. What's an off-target effect? It's when your piece of RNA doesn't go where you want it to. It goes somewhere else and changes something somewhere else. That can be a problem. It could even lead to a, a cancer or something. So that, that's one of the issues that needs to be worked out with this. Um, so check for that and then put it back into the person. Um, that's going to be the easiest to do gene therapy. Moderately difficult for some of like our liver disorders where we may be able to trick the liver cells into regenerating and redividing that way. Um, but difficult for things like CNS, especially where a lot of the damage has already been done prenatally. Also used as a weapon against viruses and viral-based tumors. Um, using the induced pluripotent, pluripotent stem cells, which can be edited and then return to the donor patient and wouldn't have an immune response. So lots and lots of different um, uses for this. The National Academy of Sciences and Medicine um, have come out with recommendations. They think it's okay to go for, go for it with somatic cell editing for disease treatment. For What about germline enhancement? No, they don't think it's good for that. They don't want us modifying our physical traits. So if you want your kids to be bigger, faster, stronger, obviously we're not ready for that. And what about germline for disease prevention? Um, changing the germline can be, you know, forever. It's a forever change, changing a germline. And they think more research is needed for that. But as it turns out, it's already being done. It's being done. Uh, this was a report that came out last year from Oregon Health Sciences. You can't use federal funds to play with embryos, so they used institutional funds. And they actually, by homologous-directed repair, were able to fix uh, a cardiomyopathy defect in 75% of the 58 embryos that were donated. So it's being done, and his, uh, <laughs> the lead uh, researcher's quote was, private clinics are going to be using it one way or another. So there are going to be unintended consequences from this, as well as uses outside of the societal norm, because it is relatively simple and inexpensive, and how are we going to enforce the regulation? Um, the genetic enhancements idea is going to be a slippery slope. Biological warfare is definitely a concern. Um, creation of new species. Some people are trying to bring back the mammoth, which could be kind of cool. Um, and then the whole question of are we, are we playing God?
So buzz, sorry I have to buzz through that so quickly, but just to summarize, we have a lot, huge number, growing number of resources for genomics in primary care, and you guys are gonna have to increasingly integrate genetics and genomics into your practice. Um, you're gonna have to know how to interpret tests and as well deal with the direct-to-consumer testing. Um, but you are uniquely positioned to utilize the genomic information that's gonna be brought in through the patient's lifetime, whether it's newborn screening, uh, pharmacogenetics, cancer prognosis, or treatment of genetic disorders, and we're gonna have to collaborate with the geneticists, the primary care physicians, the laboratories, and even the payers to effectively utilize the genomics that are most gonna benefit our patients. So I'll stop there and see if we have any questions. Thank you. Um, I just had a quick question about with respect to the whole genome sequencing, what's being done to bank the sequencing data? Is there anything, like, if you as a provider are ordering these tests and ordering, like, whole genome sequencing, do you just get the raw data as well, or do you only get the results? Um, so the question is, what happens to the whole genome sequencing data? And we get the results, but the raw data is kept, and what most labs do is they give you an opportunity to reanalyze the data after a year for a nominal fee. And a lot of new genes have been discovered in that year's time, and we've done that in a number of cases and been able to get uh, diagnoses that we weren't able to get on the first run. So they do keep the data. I don't know for how long, though. This is a terrific talk. Thank you. Um, what is being done um, nationwide to develop educational programs for practicing primary care docs? Um, yeah, actually the AAP has a lot of information. Um, the Genetics and Primary Care Institute at the AAP, if you're an AAP member, you can you know, get on their website and take advantage of all of that information. And there are, if you, um, if you Google genomics and education, there are a lot of other um, a lot of other formats as well. A lot of courses being taught now. You know, there's a lot out there. But AAP is, I would start there. Hi, thank you, that was great. I'm a developmental pediatrician, so I do a lot of this testing with my patients and so frequently get back sort of unknown <laughs> clinical significance. And so I was interested in the four places where they're doing the whole exome sequencing in the newborns. Are they following them forward so that they get more data yeah, the question is, are they, are, in the research, are they, with the newborns whole exome, are they following them forward? And yes, I'm sure that they are following them uh, going forward. Yeah, I don't know for how long, though. Each, each site is doing a slightly different project. Thank you very much, Dr. Demers. That was a fantastic talk. Um, as a primary care doc, I'm totally overwhelmed and you have no idea where to go next. But I also serve as a clinical ethicist here. And I'm, you alluded to a lot of the potential ethical dilemmas that are going to come, come about over the next 5, 10, 15 years with some of the genomic sequencing. And I'm wondering how closely either institutionally, say, at Carolinas or even here, Stephanie, you might be able to ask. I haven't had any cases come before the Clinical Ethics Committee here about some of the controversies about the clinical aspects of genomic sequencing, and I'm wondering how closely they're integrated. Yeah, I guess I'll have to come back and give another lecture just on that. I, I do sit on our ethics committee at Carolinas um, and uh, give a lot of lectures to our residents on ethics mm -hmm. as well, so it, it really does come up. We didn't have enough time to go over individual 
uh, scenarios here. But a lot of, you know, um, now that we can do SNP arrays, there's a lot of issues that come up with regards to incest um, and consanguinity and um, non-parental non-parental as well. Not, yeah, so lots of different issues come up. Be happy to come back next year, visit with Angela again. <laughs> Helpful and a trigger for you to say a return visit next year. Ski season or not ski season? Uh, not ski season. <laughs> <laughs>